The following message is entitled, Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith, Part 3. This message was given during the evening service on February 12, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For those that are on media, the sermon again, title is Proven Faith, Fired Up Faith, Part 3. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. It is a joyfully suffering salvation. That's my title for this series. And uh, this is countercultural all the way down the line. The series is, is going upstream in a downstream world of the culture as well as the church today. Church mimics the culture almost to a T across the board, whatever the culture holds to the church is not soon the church is soon to follow and uh, our church is addicted to comfort entertainment so the church follows after that the analogy i've given you is that the tail is wagging the dog think of a dog walking down the street and his tail is wagging now reverse that and consider a tail walking down the street wagging a dog and the analogy is the dog is the church and the tail is the culture. And the church, represented by the metaphor of the dog, is to lead the culture by righteous example. The dog is to wag the tail. Sadly, tragically, the church is following the culture and so the culture of the tail, the, church, the society, the tail is wagging the dog of the church. The tail is the culture. The dog is the church. The tail is the culture leading the dog to destruction. In order to resist that, we have to be countercultural. We have to be counterintuitive, which is a fancy word that means we go against cultural common sense. Cultural common sense says, why would anyone not want comfort? What's wrong with that? Going against that common sense aspect of the culture is this passage. Verse 6, in this, our salvation mentioned in verses 3 to 5, you greatly rejoice, mega joy, even though now, here it is, for a little while, if necessary, if it is the if of surety, class condition of surety, since it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. This is the necessity. This is everything the church rejects today in most Christians. Had countless believers come through this church looking only for professed believers, looking for positive teaching and things that will help them to take their problems away. Countless individuals who've made profession of faith in Jesus Christ expecting Jesus to take their problems away because they got saved. When the problems increased, the profession was shown to be false. Christ was abandoned. I wanted him to be my celestial medical doctor, my celestial Santa Claus. I want him to fix and give me stuff. He is my Pepsi Jesus. Give me stuff, which was an ad campaign for Pepsi. Buy Pepsi, get stuff years ago. And many come to Christianity and to faith in Jesus Christ, so to speak, to buy Jesus, get stuff. That's not what verse 6 is saying. We will continuously be distressed by trials. It's Roman numeral 1 at the top of your note sheet. So small you need a magnifying glass to see it. Christians are to be joyful despite trials. Now we're in verse 7. So that the proof of your faith. What is the proof of one's faith? Verse 6. 
rejoicing while suffering, rejoicing in your salvation while suffering. That is a major test of the true nature of one's faith. That is the proof of your faith. Verse 7. And that proof of faith, which confirms that we're saved, that's more valuable and precious than gold, which is perishable. To be assured that you're saved because you rejoice in suffering is extremely valuable. And that's letter A under number two in your note sheet at the top. Christians are to be joyful while suffering for Christ as proof of saving faith. We are to look for rejoicing and salvation while we suffer for the cause of Christ. Letter A, joy while suffering for Christ is the proof of saving faith. And now we're still looking in letter B. What is the nature of proven faith? It is tested by fire. Number one, we already saw that the nature is that it's more precious to gold. Now, number two, in your note sheet above the dotted line, proven faith will continuously be tested by fire. We have to accept that reality. This is true biblical Christianity. It's not comfort. It is not wealth. It is not getting ahead. It's not always getting promotions. Christians shipwreck on those false heretical ideas. Jesus Christ did not come to make your life wonderful, heal all your sins physically, make your circumstances all wonderful, give you money. He did not come to spare you suffering and hardship. He came to protect you in the midst of suffering and hardship. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 for a moment, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Jesus does not promise a rose garden. He promises roses with thorns. He did not say that in the Bible, does not say anywhere in the New Testament, the apostles, that you and I will be spared hardship. If you believe that message, you are not a biblical Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the, Father's, the Father of mercies, pity for our condition. He knows we're suffering. Mercy always assumes suffering. We don't need mercy. If a guy puts a gun to your head and you say, please have mercy, what are you saying? Spare me the gunshot, right? So when the Bible says that God is a God of mercy towards us, that assumes we're having bad situations, right? And the God of all comfort. See, he's to relieve my trials. No. Verse 4, who comforts us by removing all our affliction. Is that what it says in verse 4? Comforts by removing all affliction. Comfort in all our affliction. The affliction stays, the comfort comes in. And look how many times affliction and comfort are mentioned. Verse 4, comfort is mentioned uh, four times. But look at how many times in verse 4 affliction is mentioned. Twice. Look at verse 5. Sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance. That's not just the apostles, that's us. And then there's comfort mentioned. Look at verse 6. Afflicted, comfort, comforted, comforted, sufferings, sufferings. Oh my goodness, verse 6 is unbelievable. Affliction and suffering is mentioned once, twice, thrice. Comfort is mentioned once, twice, thrice. And then the key spiritual virtue that allows us to be comforted in our affliction is endurance. And the patient enduring of the same sufferings. Verse 7, suffering is mentioned again. Comfort mentioned again. This is your suffering passage and how it works. God provides and promises spiritual comfort in the midst of suffering. He doesn't promise removal. And what is the comfort in the midst of the suffering? Well, the comfort 
Essentially, is back in 1 Peter 1.6. It's joy. That's what it is. It's joy in the midst of the suffering. That's essentially what it is. The uh, word comfort, by the way, back there that's used multiple times in 2 Corinthians 1, it's used ten times, actually. Ten times. Periclesis. Periclete. Um, to encourage alongside to come alongside, to uplift while near. That's what joy does. The Spirit of God comes and gives us an upliftment of joy near in our minds while we suffer. There is no promise to get suffering taken out of your life. It's controlled by God. He determines how much suffering we have. And then when you go back to 1 Peter 1.7, it gets worse, as I've pointed out in the last few sermons on Sunday nights. It is continually, your faith, your proven faith will be continually tested by fire. Even though tested by fire, that is your proven faith. What proves your faith? What shows it to be real? Joy while suffering for Christ. If I have no joy when I'm suffering, I have no assurance of salvation. If I have joy but never am suffering for Christ, I have no assurance of salvation. They're Siamese twins. They're connected. Joy, verse 6, while it is necessary to suffer, intertwined. That, when we experience that miraculous joy while suffering for the cause of Christ, that proves our faith. It's more precious. That gets tested by fire. This proves we're true believers. Albert Barnes, in the quote that you see there, there's no quote. You say, where's the quote? I don't see any quote. You wrote quote there, John. Where's the quote? No, that's a rage problem. I'll be glad to counsel you on that later. I will quote Albert Barnes in a moment, but he comes up with some principles on this passage which are phenomenal. I'm not going to steal his fire or claim that they're mine. I'll give them to you word for word as he, in his commentary from decades ago, shares these valuable insights on what are we on? Look at your outline again. Roman numeral two, letter B, the nature of proven faith. Point number two, you and I will be fired up for our faith, tested by fire. First principle that Albert Barnes shares, number one, fill in the blank, it is a desirable thing that a Christian's faith should be tried. It is a desirable thing that a Christian's faith should be tried. You should want that. You should want to have your faith tested. Okay? You should want to have your faith tested. God will test your faith, but you should want that. So write that under point number one. From Albert Barnes, you should want your faith tested. Why? Because not all faith is true faith. And in an apostate age, the majority of professed faith is false faith. Only a remnant is truly saved. So you'd want, you, you want to find out, don't you? You want to find out after you're dead whether you're saved or not. You want to find out beforehand, right? The testing there, then, the word testing, as we've seen, speaks to the issue of checking it out, making sure it's real, genuine. Fire tests gold, fire tests your faith. Checks it for impurities, checks it for legitimacy. Real gold is purified by fire, real faith grows under fire. You and I should want that tested. This is extremely important in the Bible that we should want our faith tested. You should want this. I'm saying it repeatedly. 
This is the application time of this principle right here from Albert Barnes that I'm giving you. Do you want your faith accurately tested to your own mind so you know whether you're truly saved? No, 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 no. You don't ever want to say to God, I know I'm saved or others because I asked Jesus to save me. That's not how you know you're saved. That's how you get saved. And the two do not meet. We don't ever say to God, don't ever say to others, I know I'm saved because I made profession of faith. No, that's how you get saved. How you know you're saved, tested by fire. I've shown it to you before. The other major testing passage, go over to 2 Corinthians 13. Most of these things are always by review, but we learn by repetition. I remember having Dr. Benware at Moody Bible Institute. He was a great teacher at Moody Bible Institute when I was there. He's with the Lord now. And he said, uh, most things in the Bible are repetition. This is how we learn. You learn the major passages that teach you major things. And you can go to those passages by repeatedly returning to them. So here's another major testing passage. And it's 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. You're to test yourself. Peirazzo. It's an imperative command. Test yourselves. That's all believers are to do that. You're supposed to test yourself. You're supposed to do this. What is the word? It's synonymous with examine. It says it twice. Test. And then Examine. Dokimazo, judge yourself. Imperative command, two of them. You to test yourselves, examine yourselves. Do this continuously. First Peter 1 7 is God tests us. He allows suffering for the faith to come into your life. That is his divine orchestrated test upon you that you can then use to examine whether you're truly saved. Okay? This principle is so difficult for professed believers in this country to grasp. We are strongholded, and I've run into this in our church in the past, strongholded by this idea. I know I'm saved because I asked Jesus to save me. That is a strongholded, false statement that is unbiblical. I hope you understand that. You don't test yourself by reviewing your profession. If your profession was biblically correct, you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you repented, and you ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior by faith alone. There's nothing to test there. The devious nature of us as humans is we can pray that prayer and not be saved. Because we didn't really mean it. You know that you're saved by testing. Testing doesn't save you, that's heresy. Testing proves whether you're saved. And Paul tells us to do it twice in verse 5. Peirazzo yourselves, dakimazo yourselves. To see if you believers are in the faith. In the faith means saved. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test. If you fail the test, you're not saved. If you're not saved, then the Spirit of Christ does not dwell in us, see? Then, 
This test shows forth after the parenthetical statements of verses 6 and 7 in verse 8. Parentheses is, but I trust that you, in verse 6, now we pray to God, verse 7, then he returns to the topic. So connect the end of verse 5 to verse 8. The end of verse 5, unless indeed you fail the test, for we can do nothing, verse 8, against the truth, but only for the truth. This is the test for truth, for truth. I said in Sunday school this morning, in the lesson, the primary evidence that one is backslidden is they turn from the truth. When you turn from the truth in your life, that shows you're either a rebellion or you're not a believer. To permanently be divested from truth and be ignorant permanently of the word means that you're against the truth, and I'm against the truth, therefore not a believer. This is a test to see whether one is saved, not backslidden. Verse 5, in the faith is referring to salvation, not sanctification. To be in the faith is state of being. It means this is where you are living. You are truly converted in the faith. And if you are, you are for the truth, in verse 8. You deeply imbibe in it. We rely on two powerful forces to transform us. The power of God, in verse 4, and the power of truth, in verse 9. For we rejoice when we ourselves are weak, but you are strong. We also pray for you that you may be made complete. Made complete, in verse 9, through the truth, verse 8. Power of the Spirit, verse 4, the power of truth, verses 8 and 9. We grow by faith, saturating ourselves with the truth of the Word of God. This is why it is a death knell, K-N-E-L-L, death knell. This is a permanent state of execution and death to have a professed believer who does not know the Word ever. That is a person who has no spirit, in verse 4, no power, no truth, verse 8 and 9. We're to grow towards completion at the end of verse 9. So we test, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it's commanded, you need to do this continuously. You mean you never reach a point where you can just say, okay, I don't need to test myself anymore? No, because we're battling with sin and we fail so much with sin. It's a constant roller coaster in a Christian life. We bottom out in sin and their habitual habits of sin, and we know that from Hebrews 12, 1. The sin that so easily besets you, we bottom out on the roller coaster we get shook up by sin. Oh, why did I do this? How could I be saved? There's always that little question. I continuously do this. I'm not seeing victory potentially. I repent, go on the up, up coast, coaster to the top of assurance as I return to victory. I start to be made complete in verse 9. I return to the word of God, verse 8. I'm praying for God to empower me, verse 4. I reach the heights of assurance. Then I crash down into sin again. I don't accept the teaching that some have that when one is saved, one consistently does righteousness and doesn't sin a whole lot. There are Bible teachers that teach that. I'd, I'd like to see that in the Bible. I don't see that anywhere. If you've ever found a passage that says Christians stop sinning or do very little sin once they're saved, I mean, wow. I, 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 I'm, I'm stymied by that. I really am stymied. One Orthodox preacher said in a sermon I listened to recently, when you're truly saved, you consistently partake of righteousness and you consistently resist sin. What does that mean? Because Galatians 5 says, I'm constantly at war with the flesh. And the Spirit is. And in Romans 7, Paul says, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. And 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul says, I'm the worst sinner that I know. 
Are you saying, John, then that we test ourselves and it's okay to continue sinning? No. But 1 John 1 tells us that if you think you don't have any sin or aren't consistently sinning, you're not even a believer. 1 John 1 tells us that. We war against the flesh. Should we see victory? Oh, definitely, yes. If we don't see victory, we're never going to have assurance. God doesn't want us in a continuous state of loss of assurance. That's chastisement. We need to see ongoing victory. We need to see resisting the flesh and the power of the Spirit. But if we're not seeing that, we're going to lose assurance. This is why we keep testing ourselves. Because the war with the flesh never ends. And so you've got the human aspect of testing, 2 Corinthians 13.5. Now go back to 1 Peter 1.7. And God is doing it as well. This is a double-barreled shotgun. Double-barreled shotgun. You know what a double-barreled shotgun is, right? Two barrels. You ever seen those in the westerns? Barrels are either over and under or sideways together. And uh, two cartridges in there. Some of the rifles, greeners from the Old West, have two triggers. You can pull them both at the same time and blow your rotator cuff off or do them one at a time. There's a reason for double-barreled shotguns. This is massive power that's needed instantly. You can blow a huge hole in. There's a reason why the Bible says every believer himself, left-hand barrel of the shotgun, needs to test himself. And also God, right-hand barrel of the shotgun, God needs to test us. We are messed up with sin. And he loves us so much, he doesn't want us ever to go into hell thinking we're saved when we're not. God is pleading with us through the apostles and through his own teaching here, through Peter. We have to be tested. And Christians are very sluggish on this. They don't know how to test themselves. They don't think it's right. They think it's work salvation. So confused, so confused. This is essential. So essential. Rejoicing while suffering for the faith, both are necessary. That proves you're a believer, and I am. That is more valuable than gold, and God will continue to test that proven faith by nailing you and I so that we accurately assess our proven faith. Albert Barnes, aha, the quote for number one. To gold we apply the action of intense heat that we may know whether is what it appears to be. That's simple. You got a piece of gold, you melt it down, that removes the impurities, and it shines more. If you take a piece of fool's gold, stick it under heat, it just disintegrates. The testing through fire is good to test the gold. Who wouldn't want their gold purified, right? And as religion... When Albert Barnes in World War II era said religion, he refers to biblical Christianity. And as religion is of more value than gold, so it is more desirable that it should be subjected to the proper tests, that its nature may be ascertained. There is much which appears to be gold which is of no value, as there is much what appears to be true faith which is of no value. The one is worth no more than the other unless it is genuine. Did you catch that? Both, proven, both faith and gold are worthless, he is saying, unless it's genuine. 
So a false, untested, unproven faith is worthless. It's worthless. Faith in Jesus Christ is worthless if it's tested and shown to not stand a test. It's just as worthless as gold. So number one, it is a desirable thing that a Christian's faith should be tried. We need to stop resisting and pushing against the sufferings we receive for the cause of Christ and yield to the desirable testing. Barnes number two. God uses various methods, he says. God uses various methods in trying his people with an intent to test the value of their piety. What's piety? Godliness. God uses various methods in trying his people with an intent to test the value of their godliness or piety and to separate it from all impure mixtures. This is brilliant, brilliant principle. God uses various methods in trying his people with an intent to test the value of their piety and to separate it from all impure mixtures. So number one, we should want, Barnes is saying we should want the heat of testing, okay, which is suffering. Fire refers to suffering for the faith. That exposes everything, true and false. We should want that. And number two, the trying purifies us. So the testing not only shows genuineness, the testing by fire not only with gold and with the believer shows genuineness of faith, it also purifies the faith. Write that under number two. Suffering for the cause purifies the faith. So you're tied up in a Muslim jail for the faith and you're about to be beheaded. Creating a crazy analogy here now. And there's a TV in the corner of your jail cell. And you beg the executioner before he chops and lops your head off, can you just finish the TV show that you're watching? Which is trash. Tongue hanging out watching trash. Okay, it's done. Now you can cut my head off. Crazy analogy. Who would do that? We do that. We're being executed by our own sin. We feed it, the monster of our sin, through various aspects of the culture. We're dying. So God brings suffering for the faith along to pair that off, to skim off and purify the Christian. We realize it just doesn't matter, all this stuff going on. Why do Christians stay home to watch a Super Bowl game? There's nothing sinful with that. Nothing at all. You know I always have to get the Super Bowl in on this sermon once a year, right? Just stick the nail in and pound it in. And I've read articles, Christians are like abominations for staying home to watch the Super Bowl. That's ridiculous. The problem isn't the Super Bowl. The problem isn't the halftime show that I'm sure that it's deviant and horrible. I haven't seen it for decades. The problem isn't a once-a-year event. The problem is what we're doing with our lives every day. And we can't unlock from this culture without some help. And what's the help? Fire! When they're ready to cut your head off for the faith, you don't care whether you paid your Netflix bill. 
All those besetting sins that you have, wash away. Before you're executed and going to face the holy God of this universe, you want to make sure you're saved. So you say to the Muslim executioner, give me 20 seconds to repent. I want to be right and holy before God before I see him. I need assurance that I'm going to heaven. Stop, please. Sin just doesn't matter anymore. brainwashed you need comfort you need entertainment financial security nice places to live so to use the analogy that I gave this morning in the sermon from the horrific fight going on in the car right in front of me 12.30 to 1.30 12 to 1 Friday night that I watched for an hour the godless Christian would say this this is Bad. I've got to get out of here. I'm sick of the trash going on on my block. These people are nuts. Need to get that for sale sign up. What does a godly Christian do looking out that window and seeing the arms flailing? Are these two yelling at each other? Are we scared of that violence? Yeah, we're scared of it because we're weak. Godly Christian says, it's not about me. It's not about safety. These people are going to hell, filled with rage, ready to kill each other, screaming for an hour. They have no hope without Christ. How can I get the gospel to them? One of those neighbors a few years ago, I've told you this before, the mother was screaming in the front yard, screaming. I was getting out of my car, I went over to her. She couldn't speak English. What's wrong? She, she waved me inside. Wow, going inside, screaming over something inside, waves me inside. Whoa. Would you have gone inside? Would it have been safe to go inside? I don't know, but I went in. Takes me down into the dungeon of the house, down at the basement. Oh my goodness, she's screaming, she's crying, the mother is. They go down and there's one of her children sitting there, weeping his eyes out with a knife, ready to stab himself. Ready to go into eternity. All around us. Devastation from sin. They are not the enemy. A different race is not the enemy. Sin and Satan is. We have the only message to save them. And what does the church do? The body of Christ? Cowards! Cowards galore! I have to get out. Let them go to hell. We're supposed to suffer for the faith. Walking down those steps, I was scared to death. That's suffering for the faith. Wanted some way, somehow, to give that message to him down there. His girlfriend had left him and he's ready to kill himself. All I could say was, Christ is a better way. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. He can get you through this. Please don't, don't kill yourself. Don't kill yourself. This is what suffering do, does. It can save souls and it purifies our lives so our priorities are eternal 
We'll close with Barnes. Principle number two, we'll pick up the next three next time. They'll be quick, that's why there's no lines for writing under three through five. He said he tries his people by prosperity. Isn't that interesting? Barnes says you're tried by prosperity. Prosperity is a trial. Maybe one of the most sophisticated trials that we can face is prosperity. Nothing more powerfully destroys our fervency for Christ than prosperity. He tries his people by prosperity, often as decisive a test of godliness as can be applied to it. There is much pretended godliness which will bear adversity, but which will not bear prosperity. The godliness of man is also divisively tested by popularity, by the flatteries of the world, by a sudden increase of property, and in such circumstances it is often conclusively shown that there is no true faith in the soul. It's an interesting take on the passage. Not sure that I agree that that is the context, but I thought it was worth quoting that Barnes is saying the testing by fire could actually be prosperity. I believe the testing, ultimately in context, is suffering for the faith, witnessing and serving, serving in the church, faith outside the church, and you're going to suffer. But it is an interesting take worth meditating on that Satan realizes that prosperity has shipwrecked more Christians away from Christ than suffering for the faith. It basically tones down all of our fervency for Jesus Christ as prosperity. So it is a tool of Satan, prosperity, and it is a tool he wields very expertly with 10,000 years of expertise. What did he use with Eve to cause her to fall? Was it suffering or prosperity? What? Prosperity. And what was the prosperity? Huh? Old man here. Yeah, the, the fruit, right? Desirable to the eyes. Yeah. Prosperity is what takes us down. So is it the context of verse 7? No. But is it a deadly satanic attack to live in a prosperous area? Which is any area in Western civilization, frankly. It's worth some consideration. We see the war, dear Lord. It is suffering for the faith. It is prosperity. It is constant attack from Satan. It is the war of the flesh internally. It is the dangers of society externally. It is a hopelessness of paganism attacking us. The wickedness of those we live with, those that are next to us, and those at work. We never seem to stop suffering. Even at the end of the day, when we want to relax and enjoy life, the potential for suffering at the hands of prosperity never ceases. From reading Albert Barnes, Lord, I know he's not saying that prosperity divorced from context is sinful. It is not. Many of the great patriarchs like Adam were, uh, Abraham were extremely wealthy. Wealth is not evil. Wealth by itself does not shipwreck Money is not sinful, it is a love of money that is, and therein is the snare. It is not that prosperity by itself is wicked, it's that we come to love it. And when we love it, we tend to not want to do your will. That's the trap. Loving the things of this world, even if they're innocent, to such a degree that we are shipwrecked doing your will. 
Father, I pray that you would please revive us. That we would test ourselves and we yield to the desirable fact that you will test us because you love us so that we make sure that we're saved before we die. We want to live in the realm of assurance. We want to look at prosperity, dear Lord, as a beautiful striped tiger in a cage. The glorious colors, the power of the sinews, the muscles, the teeth that are so powerful in the jaws of that tiger. And we look at that prosperity and say that is such a beautiful thing, but oh, open the cage door and we can die. Prosperity jumps out and attacks us in ways that so quickly can shipwreck us, Lord. Money, comforts, things, housing, wealth, jobs, power, popularity, entertainment, music. It's all there, tigers in a cage, Lord, and if we realize it's a tiger in the cage, maybe we'll keep the lock and the key handy and guard ourselves with self-discipline to not imbibe until we are drunk on sin and divorced from your will. How we need your power for this. It is impossible to obey these principles we've learned tonight in the power of our own wills. We need 2 Corinthians 13.4, power from on high, working through 2 Corinthians 13.9, the truth of your word. When we're in doubt, Lord, whether we've been ensnared by prosperity or doubting your protection through suffering, drive us back to the word so that we will do the four things you've called us to do. Read it, study it, understand it, and apply it. We will saturate ourselves with truth, that our blood would be bibbling. Only then are we fortified by the sword, protected by the shield of faith as it grows in a dangerous world of prosperity and persecution. What awesome, powerful tools Satan has at his disposal. Wielding the sword of persecution and the sword of prosperity with great skill, cunning, and power. Laughing at our piddly efforts to be devoted to you. And as someone has their blood pressure medicine to take, we say, help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night. You're dismissed.